I invite you to take your Bibles and turn them to the Gospel of John, John chapter 18. And now as we turn to John 18, we are turning the page to the final section of the 21 chapters of John's Gospel. God, John's Gospel really does divide up into some very nice and neat uh, sections and distinct divisions, all of which are seeking to uh, put forward the overarching purpose uh, for which John has written this gospel account. I've, I went through the gospel of John this week, and I kind of divided the sections up, and I gave them some headings, and so I want you to see these sections, and we've been right in the middle of all of these. First of all, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, you see what's known as the prologue. This is the preview of all that John's going to discuss in his gospel account, and so the theme of John's gospel is expressed there, and then throughout the 21 chapters, it is expanded and explained throughout the book. The next section I'm calling preparation. This is when Jesus is making preparation for his gospel ministry. It begins by him um, calling his disciples after his baptism with John the Baptist, and then he goes into chapter two with, um, and chapter three with the wedding of Cana. Chapter four, you have the woman at the well. This was all in preparation for his ministry. As you move into chapter five, I'm calling that persecution. This is when the religious leaders begin to recognize and see who Jesus is and what he's all about. And so they make multiple attempts, all to no avail, to arrest him and even to kill him. And it's through this season of persecution um, that Jesus is working out his divine timetable. And even later in the, in the gospel account, when Jesus says, if they persecuted me, just know they're going to persecute you, he was referring back to this season when he was being persecuted. The persecution really continues, but really in chapters 9 through 12, I'm calling that proclamation. That's when Jesus really unabashedly and unashamedly proclaims who he is. We have several of the I am statements that Jesus made. I am the the good shepherd, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I'm the resurrection and the life. It's there in chapter 11 when he says, I'm the resurrection of, and the life. He actually raises Lazarus from the dead. And therefore, when you move into chapter 12, it's not Jesus making proclamation, but the people making proclamation about who he is. They begin proclaiming messianic titles upon Jesus. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. You move into chapter 13 through 17, you have what I'm calling pedagogy. That's individual classroom instruction. And he breaks down with the 11 who remain in the upper room discourse, this clear and intimate teaching and instruction that, it, that concludes with what we just finished over the last three Sundays, the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. Now we're turning the page into chapter 18, and I'm calling the rest of this passion. This is the passion of the Christ. Here in chapter 18, John begins his account of the betrayal, the arrest, the mockings, the trials, and the crucifixion, burial, and ultimate resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, this last section that we are beginning this morning as we go through these last four chapters, I've outlined in specific preaching passages and texts. Today will be the longest passage we cover over these uh, four chapters, Lord willing. And I say that to say we're going to slow down our pace considerably as we go through the crucifixion of Jesus. We're going to look at great detail of each element of Jesus's crucifixion because John in his gospel account looks at each de detail 
uh, of the passion of Christ. We are scheduled to conclude John's gospel December 10th, just in time for Christmas. How, isn't that great? So as we come here though, I, I would point out that John's account of the passion of the Christ, John's account of this final day, Thursday evening, Friday into the resurrection, it is markedly different than the other three gospel accounts, uh, primarily with some of the things that John leaves out. John omits several details that Matthew, Mark, and Luke include. For instance, uh, John does not include Jesus's anguished prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where he sweat great drops of blood. He doesn't include even Judas's kiss as he comes to betray him. He doesn't include his uh, consultation or actually his trial before the Sanhedrin. Uh, John does not include that he appears before King Herod. John does not include Judas's suicide. John does not include Simon of Cyrene carrying his cross up to Golgotha. John does not even include the repentant thief hanging on the cross, and John doesn't include darkness covering the earth at the moment when the sin was laid on his shoulders. John does, however, include some elements that the other three gospel accounts do not include. For instance, as, as Daryl mentioned in the prayer time in the text before us today, John includes how these soldiers, these temple guards were bowled over at the presence and the power of Jesus by his spoken word. John includes uh, this dialogue that happens between Jesus and Pilate. The other gospel accounts do not include it. John includes the inscription they put over the cross. John includes when Jesus from the cross places his mother Mary into the care of John, this gospel writer. And John includes even the piercing of his side and water and blood mixed came out. The other three gospel accounts do not include that. And Perhaps very interestingly, John includes Nicodemus, the very same Nicodemus that came to Jesus in chapter 3, actually taking Jesus' body down from the cross and burying it with Joseph of Arimathea in his borrowed tomb. So how do we harmonize these accounts of the crucifixion? Very different accounts. Some actually point to these differences, and they say they're contradictions, and they prove that you can't trust the Bible. But it, they're actually not contradictions. They actually are a more well-rounded account of all that happened. For instance, if a detective was uh, investigating a crime and there were several eyewitnesses that this detective uh, interviewed and got testimony from, if each of those eyewitnesses had the exact same line-by-line, word-by-word testimony, well, it wouldn't be very trustworthy testimony, Right? And the same is true here. This differences that John has actually increases the validity and the trustworthiness of his account. Further, John's gospel was written decades after the other three gospel accounts had been concluded. So he's writing with the assumption, you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Have you? <laughs> you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so he's writing under that assumption that there, here's some things they didn't include, but I want to include them because they support his overall theme. But finally, we can't forget that John does, in fact, have a purpose in his writing. John has a theme he's wanting to present and support by his record, and particularly in the passage we're studying today. These 14 verses we're going to look at, they support a principle and a truth that John wants us to understand, and it's the title of my message. Jesus is sovereign over all. 
As we study this passage today, as we look at this account of the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus, what we will come to recognize, Jesus was not waylaid by these evil people. Jesus was not some hapless victim who fell to their plot and their scheme. He was not some pawn being bumped around by their whims. No, Jesus, with every single detail of the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, even to the resurrection, Jesus is sovereign over it all. In fact, here's the thesis for my message today. Jesus acted in perfect obedience to the Father's will, and in so doing, he sovereignly orchestrated every detail surrounding his crucifixion. Again, Jesus is not some helpless victim. He he is the Lord of the universe. And even in these moments, he's perfectly executing the purpose of redemption that was a plan developed in the mind of the triune God as they took counsel together before the world even existed. And Jesus is executing that plan perfectly. Now, to be sure, there are bad actors on Good Friday. There are evil people with ill intent. There are jealous Jews who want to take him out. There are bloodthirsty, sadistic Romans who inflict incredible pain on the beautiful and brilliant Savior. He was unjustly arrested. He was viciously beaten. He was savagely murdered. And all this is a, re- is a result of the corrupt establishment in the capital city of Jerusalem. You think the swamp in Washington, D.C. is bad? They've got nothing on Jerusalem in first century A.D. But even at that, there is a message that John wants us to understand. Jesus is sovereign over all. So let's look at our focal text. We're going to begin reading in chapter 18 at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 14. This is God's infallible and errant word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Many of you have probably heard this name, Albert Schweitzer. 
Albert Schweitzer in the first part of the 1900s was well-known in society. He was a, a brilliant mathematician, also a gifted musician who would give organ concerts. He was a prolific writer. He was a trained physician and medical doctor, but he was also a compassionate humanitarian. He ended his days by serving in the West African country of Gabon in a hospital there that he established and founded. Um, he was also something of a philosopher and theologian a liberal theologian, but a theologian nonetheless. In fact, he authored, one of the books he authored was the book, The Quest of the Historical Jesus. It's a 418-page volume that he published in 1906. Now, in this book from Albert Schweitzer, he espoused his conclusion about Jesus that although Jesus was the greatest, the most moral man who ever lived, he was not God. But he was just a mere man who was caught up in the events of his day and his own misguided personal aspirations. Now, one of the most famous quotes from this book reads like this. Jesus, in the knowledge that he is the coming son of man, lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution which to bring all ordinary history to a close. It refuses to turn and he throws himself upon it then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, he, was, he has destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward and the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who is strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. That is his victory and his reign. As he died in confusion and despair and rejection, he cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Schweitzer, with many others, saw Jesus as a victim. He was a victim of history. He was a victim of his own uh, aspirations and delusions. He was caught on the wheel of history, and that wheel ground him to death. But this is not the Jesus that John presents to us. John does not present a Jesus who is a victim, but a victor. John does not present a Jesus who is a pawn in their schemes, but he is the Lord of providence. John does not present a Jesus who is just a stooge on the stage. No, he is the sovereign God of the universe, and he is carrying out every detail according to his purposes as described in this passage. He is sovereign over all. Well, there are four ways in particular in these verses I want us to consider and see how Jesus is sovereign over all, even here. First of all, Jesus is sovereign over the sequence of events. The sequence of events that transpires over these days and over these four chapters we will study for the next several months, Jesus is sovereign over every single detail. The text says in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. There is great significance to this location Jesus chose to go to on the night of his betrayal and arrest. It's not only significant because we'll see later that Judas knew that's where he would be because that's where they always were. There's other symbolical significance to this garden that Jesus went to. The Apostle Paul describes Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as the second 
Adam that is opposed to the first Adam. The first Adam fell. The second Adam rose. In fact, we see several parallels, a tale of two gardens, if you will, in these gardens. First of all, Adam lived in a garden of innocence and perfection. Jesus entered a garden that was marked by betrayal. In the garden where Adam and Eve were, they spoke to Satan, whereas Jesus spoke to the Father. In the garden that Adam fell in, he fell in defeat. But in this garden, Jesus rose up from prayer in victory, and he embraced the purposes for which he came to the earth. Jesus came to this garden intentionally, purposefully sovereign over all. He knew very well this would be the garden where Judas would betray him. If you'll remember back in chapter 13, as they were in that upper room preparing for the Passover meal, Jesus said to Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. In other words, there's a timetable that must be kept. There's a schedule I'm on. Judas, you're the betrayer. You go do what you're going to do quickly. And I can just imagine as Judas is leading that horde of soldiers and as they're clanging up the hill, Jesus metaphorically looked at his watch. Yep, right on time. Jesus is sovereign over every detail. And it is something, it is cold and calculated that Judas would go to the place where for the last three years he heard Christ pour his heart out. That Judas would go to this place of intimacy where every time they ventured to Jerusalem from Galilee, they went to this garden and this is where Jesus shepherded this little flock and there Judas takes these arresters. And so Judas shows up John tells us he led a, quote, band of soldiers. That word band there, it's a technical term. It's spira in the original language of the Bible, and it refers to a cohort of Roman soldiers. So there are Roman soldiers here. A cohort technically was one-tenth of a legion. That doesn't mean anything to you. A legion is 10,000 soldiers. So a Roman cohort is 1,000 soldiers, Historically, we understand that a cohort is made up of 760 foot soldiers and 240 cavalry. Now, it's unlikely, though possible, that the entire cohort was dispatched and deployed, but just think a a fraction of that cohort, uh, maybe a fifth, 200 of them, show up to arrest Jesus. This is an overwhelming force for Jesus and 11 disciples. That's quite impressive to come and arrest this Bedouin prophet. Well, in addition to the Roman soldiers, John tells us there were also some officers. These are temple guards. These are Jewish officers who guarded in the temple. So think about it. There's a combined guard coming to arrest Jesus made up of Jews and Gentiles alike who will arrest Jesus, who will give his life to bring salvation to Jews and Gentiles alike. But notice verse 4 again. Their their sheer number of soldiers, and they're coming with lanterns and torches and weapons. But notice verse 4 again. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. This military force that came to arrest Jesus, it was not a surprise to him. He wasn't shocked by their number. He knew it would happen. Why? Because he determined it would happen from before the foundation of the world. And this is what John wants us to grasp here in this passage. Jesus is sovereign over all. 
He's sovereign even over these very sequence of events that are transpiring before us. But Jesus is also sovereign over this next thing. He is sovereign over the soldier's arrest. He is sovereign over these very soldier's arrest. I want you to use your imagination and you see as John described the lanterns and the torches coming up the Mount of Olives. You can hear the systematic rhythm of the marching Roman soldiers in sequence. You can hear the clanging of their weapons. Jesus knew and the 11 knew there is trouble coming. And I just in my sanctified imagination imagine Jesus turning to Peter and say, "Uh, let me do the talking. Let me do the talking here. And so they arrive, and Jesus does, in fact, do the talking. He said to them, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus simply replied, I'm he. And notice how John describes what happened next in verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. These battle-hardened soldiers At just the mere word from the Lord, it was like an atom bomb of truth went off. Boom! And they were prostrate at the power that came from him. They were leveled by the force of it. The Greek phrase here that's translated in our Bibles, I am he, it's actually just two words in the Greek, ego eimi. We've seen these two words, if you've been with this in John's gospel, again and again and again. Jesus uses these two words before each of those seven I am statements. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Jesus also used it um, in chapter 8 as well when they said, you know, you, you think you're greater than Abraham. And what did Jesus say? Well, you need to know something. Before Abraham was, I am am. That was a personal declaration of deity. And they interpreted it as such because the Bible says they picked up stones to stone him because he declared to be God. This name, I am, it was the personal name of God by which God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. When Moses said, who should I tell the people of Israel has sent me? The voice from the burning bush said, tell them, I am. I am. It's the Name of God, it's Yahweh, it's the self-existent one. And Jesus again and again proclaimed that name. And right here, it's like when he said, I am, a little bit of deity leaked out. (laughs) A little bit of glory slipped through the veil of his flesh and he leveled them all. So how appropriate that when these Jesus, that when these religious leaders arrived to see Jesus, in the middle of the night, with this overwhelming force, one more time he says, I am, and they're done for. I I just kind of think, maybe they forgot what happened. Maybe it's kind of like men in black, they're the little flashy thing, you forget what happened, because after he mows them down, he asks them again, who do you seek? And they answered again, did you forget what happened last time? (laughs) Notice how John 10 puts it. They couldn't take his life. He said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority as the great I am. He has authority to lay it down and he has authority to take it up again. They could not take his life from him. He is the great I am. And you have to kind of laugh a little bit when you look down in verse 12 and you see that when they finally did arrest him, they bound him. 
what? You're going to tie up Jesus with a rope, the one that just said a word and he mowed you down? This is not Houdini you're working with here. This is the God of eternity. Friends, if Jesus had the power to mow them down with just a word, there was nothing they could do to arrest him. There was nothing they could do to crucify him unless he is sovereign over all and he is ordering every aspect according to his divine timetable. He's sovereign over the sequence of events. He's sovereign over the arrest of the soldiers. Thirdly, he's sovereign over the souls of his friends. Seemingly, as they're recovering from being knocked down and they ask him the same question, he asks them again, who do you seek? And they tell him Jesus of Nazareth. Um, Now look at verse eight. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was not a suggestion. This was a command. I just knocked you all down. You want these guys? It's not gonna happen. Let these men go. It seems from particularly Mark's gospel account in Mark chapter 14, they were intent on arresting all of them, not just Jesus. They were intent on taking the whole group together. And Jesus, the good shepherd, is protecting his sheep. He said, you can take me, you're not taking them. And in verse nine, John sees this as a fulfillment of what the Lord prayed that we studied a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 17, when he said, uh, I've not lost them. I've not lost one of them. Look at John 17, 12. Jesus praying to the Father says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So this prayer in John 17 seems to have both a near fulfillment here in the garden and a future forever fulfillment for all of eternity. The near fulfillment is this, that they're not going to take these 11. I'm going to guard them. I'm not going to lose a single one of them. And right here, think about it. Jesus is standing in the gap, as it were, between the destroyers and his sheep. Jesus is standing between certain destruction and his disciples. And friends, did you know Jesus still does that today? He stands between certain destruction and we who are his children. He stands between certain judgment and the children of God. And he does this forever. The New Testament is replete with demonstrations of how Jesus keeps us and how he secures us. Here's a few examples. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12, for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he, Jesus, is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Peter says this to those in Macedonia. He says, you are by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then Jude in his short epistle concludes with this powerful benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his his glory with great joy to the only God, our savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord, Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now forevermore. This is the clear and encouraging message of these texts. Jesus will not lose a one. He will protect every one. And that's exactly what he's demonstrating before these mob of soldiers who sought to arrest them all. 
Jesus shows and demonstrates his effective preserving grace by guarding what had been deposited to him, by seeing us through temptation, by preserving our souls until the last day. Jesus, just as he interposed himself between these soldiers and his disciples, even today he is interposing himself between our deserved doom and grace, eternal life with him. Why? Because Jesus is sovereign over all. He's sovereign over all. And that leads to the fourth area I want us to consider his sovereignty in this passage. Jesus is sovereign over the salvation of the world. Oh, Peter, (laughs) impetuous talking and thinking or acting without thinking, Peter, he supposes, I guess, he can take on this horde of 200 plus soldiers all by his little lonesome. So he pulls out that dagger and I don't know if he was aiming for the throat or what, uh, but he missed and he hit the ear. He cuts off the chief priest's servant's ear. And the other gospel accounts tell us, though John doesn't, that Jesus healed his ear. I think that's fantastic. (laughs) Jesus healed his ear. But in verse 11, notice what Jesus says to Peter. Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I want you to circle that word cup on your outline or in your Bible. What is Jesus referring to with regard to a cup? What does he mean, drink a cup? Well, this is where I think John assumes, reader, that you have already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because we understand from those gospel accounts that it was in that Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed in anguish, sweating great drops of blood. He prayed, if there's any way possible, look at Matthew 26, 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So what is this cup? What is the cup of which Jesus is referring? The cup is the cup of God's wrath. The cup is the cup of of judgment from God upon the wickedness of this world. This is the way the word cup is used many times in the Old Testament. I'll give you a sampling. In the book of Isaiah 51, the Bible says, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs. The prophet Jeremiah puts it this way, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And then the psalmist says in Psalm 75, for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. What are dregs? We don't use that word very often in our society. Dregs are the residue that gathers at the bottom of the cup. I want you to imagine if you make yourself some tea or some coffee, and I drink a lot of coffee every day, basically a whole pot by myself. And sometimes the coffee filter bursts, and I don't know it, and so I pour out that last cup into, that last cup into my cup, and as I drink that last cup down and I take the very last swallow, what's in the bottom of that cup? The dregs. <laughs> this is the grains, and you get it in your mouth, and you're like, Bleh! right? Anybody ever experienced that besides me? It's not good. Here's what Jesus is saying. I am taking down, I am drinking 
the righteous wrath of God down to the very last distasteful morsel. He's drinking it all. And he says to Peter, I'm going to drink the cup. I'm drinking the cup of God's wrath that is meant for sinful men. Why? Because Jesus is sovereign over all. He's sovereign over all. And he has executed the plan of redemption according to his divine plan and purposes. And that includes drinking down every last drop of the wrath of God. And humanly, there in that garden of Gethsemane, we know from the other gospel writers, Jesus, in anguish, drank that cup down as he determined to go to the cross. Not my will, but yours be done. There in that garden, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood because he considered the fact that he would bear the punishment for the sin of the world, consolidated and condensed in that one moment on the cross. That one moment when he did cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus sweat great drops of blood and he took the punishment on the cross, not because he knows what's going to happen, but because he chose what's going to happen. He is the sovereign over all. And here's what I want to leave you with. We will never go through the trial and the torment and the hostility that Jesus endured. We will never go through that kind of Gethsemane where we wrestle with that kind of anguish, but we do have our Gethsemanes. We do have our times of struggle and trial and hardship and difficulty. In fact, the poets put it like this, all paths that have been or shall be must pass through Gethsemane. We'll all have times of stress. We'll all have times of brokenness. And we will wonder, can we endure it? Can we bear up under the weight of it? You may feel like you are caught on the wheels of history and you're about to be crushed. But here's what I want you to cling to this morning, friends. If Jesus was in total control over all the events of his Gethsemane, then friends, he is in total control of all the events of yours. He is sovereign over all. Just as Christ controlled his ultimate destiny, he controls yours, and he can be trusted. In fact, I want to introduce you to someone who discovered this incredible sovereignty of Jesus over his life. He has quite a story of sovereignty to tell. His name, coincidentally, is John. John lives, this is a two-week-old video I'm about to show you, John lives in New York City. And here's what he does to support himself. He collects cans and bottles from the trash that's deposited on the streets of Manhattan. He collects them and he sells them for the pennies of recycling that he makes from them. And that's how he supports himself. But that's not all John has ever done. He's got quite a story of sovereignty to tell. Watch this. What's the craziest thing you've found? Gold, gold and cash. Cartier watches, all kinds of stuff, diamonds, everything. There's nothing you can't find in New York City. So the way this industry works is people who have nothing go and they pick up the cans and bottles. Then we call a truck. So this truck goes and the driver gets one penny that he collects per bottle. Then the company that picks up the bottles from him 
gets eight and a half cents. How much do you make? Anywhere from four to $800 a week. You know, it sounds foolish, but what I do is I take the pot and pan on a Saturday and Sunday. I'll, go, I'll be in uh, Jackson Heights and I'll go sell it for five, seven dollars. So I make another thousand dollars every weekend from the stuff I find during the week. <laughs> I have to laugh because I've been doing it for so long, I've been living off of it. So in a week you have a couple grand maybe? 14, 15, 18, depends on the week. It depends on the weather. Because if I could be out in the summer day every day, I would sell all day every day. I'd make 3,000 a week. Easy, easy. You grew up in New York? I grew up in New York, grew up in Queens. Met my wife down here, had three beautiful babies with her. Came up, involved in some not too good business. And I uh, got in trouble, got locked up, lost my wife and kids. So that's why I'm in this mess picking up It must up have cans. been very illegal. Was it like the FBI or something that got involved? The FBI got me. Uh, I was smuggling drugs, marijuana. Just marijuana? Just marijuana. And people. Oh, and people. Yeah. Okay. That's the real money. Millions and millions of dollars. We used to drive boats to the Bahamas, the Bimini, different islands, and bring them over to the United States. How'd you get caught? I got ratted on. Somebody told on me. So they got off on probation and I got 10 years. Do you regret anything? Oh, yeah, I regret everything. Lost my wife and kids. I didn't get to see any of the grandchildren be born. I missed a lot of stuff, man. You seem to be able to hold that pain together pretty well, though. You don't. What am I going to do? I got no more tears. I'm all cried out. Now all I do is I can only be joyful and laugh and have a good life because it's soon going to end. I'm 60. What were you like in the past? A little crazy, a little reckless. I used to have big muscles and great hair and girls thought I was cute. So I took advantage of all of that. And, and uh, it's not the right way to be. So now I'm a Christian. I do the right thing. I do my very best to walk properly, to love the others, you know? Milton, I didn't expect to see you here. Tell me about your relationship with God. Woo! So there's a great scripture in the Word of God from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It says, for God has chosen you before the foundation of the world. What that means to me is before Genesis 1-1, he had already chosen those who he chose. I was called in June of 1993. I gave my life to the Lord. I was in jail. The three ladies came from the Bronx to preach. I just felt led in my spirit to say, okay, I, I, I think you're telling the truth. I agree, I'll accept. Since 1993, which is 30 years ago, I've screwed up a million times. I've been used of God a million times, but I've screwed up a million times. And I've come to the conclusion after 30 years that truly, truly God knew who I was and what I was gonna do and what I was gonna become. And I, he knew I would pick up cans one day before it ever happened. That scripture helps me to realize that when I fail, you know, don't please or do the things of God. He still loves me, he still cares for me because he chose me in Christ. He seated me at his right hand in heavenly places. I'm seated there right now, whether I deserve it or not. Is that hope you have for the future, something you hold on to now? It's difficult, but I've seen so many miracles and so many spiritual things that I firmly with all my heart believe that God is real. And therefore, I believe his promises in the word and I stand on them. I don't deserve it, but thank God for his grace, you know? Hola, Amanda. That's my friend Amanda. Eric, Hi. it didn't come out yet, love. Count your stuff. Milton's coming back in 15 minutes. John, here's a question for you. Talk to me. When you get to heaven, what are you going to ask God? I, why'd you choose me? <laughs> like, who am I? That you chose, that you chose me. <laughs>
I can walk on the streets made of gold. You got a house with me up there? Look at those streams and rivers and angels. Oh, it's good to go. I'd be so, I couldn't stop smiling down here. I'm gonna stop smiling up there. <laughs> what do you think he would say of you? You could have did so much better. I had so much more for you, you big dummy. <laughs> what do you have to say to someone who's trying to believe in God but can't? Simplest answer ever. I heard it from a young boy. God, 15 seconds of your time. Bow down and say, Lord, if you're real, make yourself real to me. Speak to me. I could keep you here all day, Eric, with stories. My God has been great to me. And I appreciate you coming around to encourage me and invigorate me again about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> How are we doing, ladies? How's life? Great. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> Jesus is sovereign over all, even the big dummy decisions you've done and you've made. And he can take your mess, turn it into a miracle. He can take your tragedy and turn it into a testimony. Somebody else that had quite a story to tell, the great-grandson of the patriarch Abraham. His name's Joseph. And Joseph had a winding story of difficulty, hardship, persecution, and trials. But he summarized his story before the very brothers that sold him into slavery. What did he say to them? He said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And here's the promise. Jesus is sovereign over all. Whatever enters your life, whether because of your own decisions or because of the wheel of history crushing upon you, trust in Christ. He's sovereign over all. What a God and what a great salvation. And that leads to my last thought. Because Jesus is sovereign over all, friends, that means he is sovereign over us. Even what the enemy means for evil. You turn it for our good. You turn it for our good and for your glory. Let's pray together.